Let's open the Word of God to the Gospel according to John, chapter 17 and verse 1. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and that's the time we set aside to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. On each of the next five Sundays, culminating on Christmas morning, we're going to be exploring one of the most comforting passages in all of the Bible. In John 17, we find what's been traditionally called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is an entire chapter of the Holy Word of God that records in very specific detail a prayer that Jesus prayed in the presence of the disciples on the very night in which he was betrayed and arrested. The 26 verses of this blessed prayer reveal to us the heart of our Savior and those things that were of profound concern to him during the last few hours of his earthly life and ministry. What's uncovered here about our Lord and his mission is more than amazing. It takes us to the very center of some of the deepest and most staggering truths that any human mind could ever contemplate. In fact, the Scottish reformer John Knox, the father of Presbyterianism in Scotland, was said to have requested the reading of this prayer on his deathbed in 1572. He said, this is, this prayer is the only anchor of my soul in the time of death. And I'm sure we're going to make the same discovery as we plow through and mine the riches of the words our Lord spoke in prayer prior to the time he was crucified for our sins. This morning we'll begin probing this grand chapter and uh, we will not finish it in these five Sundays but we're going to reach in and extract some of the blessed things that Jesus prayed for and see how they speak to us particularly as the Lord incarnate. Verses 1 through 5 will be our passage this morning and once again let's give our attention to the reading of the Holy Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. These are the very words of Jesus, our Lord. And may our Father now bless the proclamation and hearing of these very words. The setting of this prayer, the atmosphere of this prayer was the farewell address that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. That's why many who read this prayer call it a farewell prayer, not a high priestly prayer, although that's what it is. It is a farewell prayer. Everything that happened on that night is recorded for us by John, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, taking us all the way through the end of chapter 16. In that critical period of time, Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room and began to teach them, and he shared with them that last supper, that last Passover meal, and to their utter amazement, John tells us that in the time that he prayed this prayer, our Lord first washed the disciples' feet, 
as would a simple slave. And then, as John 13 tells us, he then commanded those same disciples whose feet had just been washed to to wash one another's feet to show their love for each other. Following the washing of their feet, which represented the, the, the disciples' need for forgiveness and their inner cleansing, then the Lord Jesus began to speak openly about his impending death. And he taught them that his suffering would be preceded by an act of betrayal, not by an enemy, but by one of the disciples. And then in John 13, 26, he names him Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Also in the setting of this prayer, Jesus uttered those very blessed and familiar words that we deeply treasure, especially in times of trouble. The disciples were greatly troubled by all that had been happening, by all that Jesus said and did, and by the news of his impending death upon the cross. And so Jesus utters these words, and you'll find these very familiar. Chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled, because Jesus had just troubled them with some news. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. And then Jesus said, I am the way. And don't you know when Jesus uttered those words, I am the way, that the minds of those disciples momentarily reflected back to the burning bush where the Lord God revealed himself to Moses. And Moses says, what is your name? And then the voice cries out, I am. And here, the one who is the great I am incarnate says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. It must have been an electric moment for the disciples. But then in chapter 15, Jesus speaks of persecution. And he says, not only am I going, but after I go, you're going to be in trouble. In chapter 15, verse 18, again, the context for this prayer, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He had just said that to them in chapter 13. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then we roll with the context into chapter 16. And then Jesus speaks even more openly about what is about to transpire. He says in chapter 16, verse 28, I came from the Father. And I've come into the world. And now... I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. In chapter 16, verse 32, as the farewell discourse comes to its end, Jesus said, behold, behold the hour. Now hang on to that phrase. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered 
each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then Jesus prays. And you can see what's happening by means of the prayer the Lord is about to utter. He will give the disciples the unassailable basis for peace that they need. He will offer them a lasting hope. He will reveal the true meaning and the splendor and glory of his life and death and resurrection and his coming reign. And through this prayer, he will strengthen and assure the hearts of these disciples who in one sense have just had their world explode before them. Jesus is leaving and he's going to die and they are going to be persecuted and sent out into the world like wolves, rather surrounded by wolves. And so Jesus prays, and through the prayer, he will give them hope, and he will ignite their resolve to be faithful to him, come what may. This is more than a prayer. It's more than a supplication. It's been said that this prayer is a revelation. It is a revelation. It is an unveiling of the Savior's identity, of the Savior's authority, of the Savior's mission. This is a prayer, notice this, that was meant to be heard. It was not a prayer prayed in secret. It was not whispered in private, but this prayer was deliberately spoken out loud for the benefit of the disciples. And what's amazing is this prayer is for you and me. In verse 20, Jesus makes that point explicit. He says he is praying also for all those who will believe in me through the word of the disciples. If you have believed in the gospel, if you have believed the good news proclaimed by the disciples of Jesus, then everything the Lord says in this blessed prayer is for you. You can actually read this morning, and anytime you choose, you can actually read the very things that Jesus prayed for you. How incredible is that? And that's what we're going to do. What did Jesus pray? What did he pray for his sheep? What did he pray for his new covenant people? What did the Lord pray for the true Israel, the new Israel of God? Notice verse 9. He says, I pray, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. This is not a prayer for the world. No, this is a prayer for you. It is a prayer for the sheep of Jesus. And so... What did he pray? And that's what we're going to discover in the next several weeks. Well, in verse 1, we see how this incredible prayer commences. The scene dramatically shifts from what we've read in John 13 through the end of John 16. Jesus now begins to pray in front of them in their hearing. They finish the, 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 the Passover meal and Jesus begins to pray. And notice that John says, suddenly Jesus lifts up his, lift up his eyes to heaven. He, he, he holds up his eyes, he lifts his face to heaven, and he begins to speak out loud in fervent prayer. And this is something that was very common. And it was common for Jesus to do. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 as Mark 
records that amazing event. We're told that all the people following Jesus that day sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And then the Lord Jesus took those five loaves and the two fish, and Mark says he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and they set those loaves and the fishes before the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus lifted up his face to the Father, and he does it again here as he prays before the disciples. In the next chapter of Mark, chapter 7, Jesus does it again. There's a deaf man. And Jesus encounters him along the way, and Jesus hears the man begging, Lord, lay your hands on me. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Mark says, Jesus strangely put his holy fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, touched the man's tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighs and says, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And instantly, the man's ears were opened. The impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And now, now Jesus does it again. He, he lifts his eyes to heaven. He turns from holding communion with the disciples to holding communion with his Father right there in front of them. The great intercessor now begins his great intercession, not only for himself, but for his own, all of his own. And what is the first word coming from the mouth of Jesus as he looks to heaven and begins to pray in the hearing, in the sight of all the disciples? The first word in his prayer is, Father. God the Son lifts his face toward God the Father in prayer. The only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, looks upward into the face of the first person of the Holy Trinity, and he addresses him as Father. And that's the way Jesus always prayed. Even in this petition, you can see how he addresses the Father six times, and he has some names for the Father. In chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus calls him Holy Father. In chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus calls him Righteous Father. And the lesson we learn immediately is that the Son of God is praying with reverence. He recognizes the holiness of his Father and the righteousness of his Father. And six times in this prayer of 26 verses, he will call God Father. Jesus always did that. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. 
In John 2, when Jesus inaugurated his ministry, he, he started his ministry by doing something very dramatic. He went to Jerusalem, and he, as one old expositor said, he had a holy fit in the temple. He cleansed the temple of all the money changers and all those who were extorting the people. And Jesus told those, this is John 2, 16, Jesus told those who sold the pigeons in the temple, he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. My father. In John 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And John says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. He was doing things like that on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And John says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. And then in John 6, that amazing passage, Oh, on my bucket list of sermons is to spend a year preaching John 6. In John 6, Jesus addresses the large crowds that have been following him, and he utters this line, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My Father will do that. And then we think of that agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as recorded by Matthew, Matthew 26, 39. Jesus now, now moving away from the disciples. Now, moments before his betrayal, going a little farther, Matthew says, Jesus, the Son of God, fell on his face saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as, as I will, but as, as you will. Jesus always prayed reverently, addressing God as Father. And now, as we read this prayer, we're plunged into the heart of that eternal mystery of the Trinity, and we're comforted by the truth that the one to whom we pray is our Father too. He is our Father. For the Word of God says that God is our Father, just like He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would write, He is, for us who believe in Jesus, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Isn't it, isn't it clear now that Jesus, in a time when the disciples needed comfort, He would turn to the God of all comfort, and He would say, Father, all of us who belong to Jesus have the infinite privilege granted to us through Christ alone to raise our eyes to heaven and call out, Father, our Father in heaven, just like Jesus taught us to pray. We pray, and the first words out of our mouth when we pray should be, Father, the God and Lord and King of the universe, the judge of all who will raise the dead and hold them accountable, that God in Christ, because he became incarnate, is Father 
father. And then Jesus, having lifted his eyes to the father, speaks of the hour. The hour. Verse 1. It is an hour uh, which has now come. The hour. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, he had spoken quite mysteriously about an approaching hour. Up until this very instant, that hour, Jesus said, had not yet arrived. He always spoke of that hour as, it's not here yet. It's coming, but it's not here. Remember, remember what Jesus said to his own mother? In John chapter 2, there was a feast, a wedding feast at Cana. And you know the story, that incredible story of how the Lord Jesus and his disciples had been invited to that wedding feast, a feast that probably lasted maybe a couple of weeks. And the wine ran out, the wine they would use to celebrate holy matrimony ran out. And the mother of Jesus was there and seeing the emergency, seeing the, 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 the real threat of embarrassment for this young couple, starting their marriage out on such a sour note, no pun intended. She turns to her son and says, son, they have no wine. They have no wine. And implicit, implicit in that motherly cry is, do something. <laughs> do something. And maybe in her heart, she's thinking, do something big that really shows them who you are, my boy. And Jesus says, woman, not mother, not dear old mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The hour. In John 7, the Pharisees are lurking around Jesus, looking for an opportunity to arrest him. If not arrest him, at least harass him out of town. John tells us in John 7:30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The hour of which Jesus spoke frequently and that same hour mentioned in his prayer is that moment when in the eternal plan of God, the earthly life and work of Jesus will find its point of consummation. This hour of which Jesus speaks and now of which he prays is that instant in time toward which the whole of his life and mission had moved. It's been defined as that stipulated moment in the eternal decree of God when all the prophecies and types and symbols of the Old Testament find their point of grand termination. And that hour, as Jesus prays, has come. Now it's here. And it is going to be an hour of total triumph. It is going to be an hour when the atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross will be consummated and all the power of Satan and hell finally destroyed. The hour of which Jesus prays is the moment of his and our total vindication. 
He will be, as Paul says, proven as the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. That hour is now, Jesus prays. And notice something. This is an hour that you would not find on a human calendar. It is not an hour that was determined by a committee of men doing planning for the year. This is, as one writer says, not an hour set apart by the fancy of men, but appointed by God, who is the sovereign governor of all things. The moment the hour has arrived, right on time, Jesus is about to know this hour, and it is an hour on time. It is timely. A moment of crisis is coming, and everything Jesus said and did and taught has been pointing toward this second in human history. Human history all along has been controlled by God. All of human history playing out under the sovereign authority of the Lord. Everything moving toward this sacred hour. And what is it? What is going to characterize this hour? What will happen? And here we have the first petition. He's addressed the Father. He's spoken of the hour. And now the Son of God says, here is what I want, Father. Glorify your Son. This is the keynote of the prayer. This is the most important moment in the history of the world. Jesus is seeking to be glorified before all creation. How important is this prayer? Note verse 5. He prays it again. Glorify me, Jesus prays, in your own presence. That's the first thing Jesus prays for. The hour has come. Glorify me in your presence. The Lord God, the Lord God has determined a moment in time when he will bring the Son into his very presence, face to face with him, and then bestow upon him all the eternal glory he has known before the world existed. Listen to that line in verse 5. Restore me, bring me, give me the glory I've known and had justly since before time began. Oh, the Lord wants to go home. He wants to go back to the place from which he came, to the heavenly throne that he rightfully occupied. He wants to be reclothed in the splendor he knew before he came as a babe in Bethlehem. He wants the radiance of his divine attributes once more on display, not veiled in human flesh. He is seeking the glory from his Father that he has always owned and deserved as the eternal divine Son of God. 
He longs for the divine divine majesty which he has always possessed. He longs for that pre-existent original glory that he always had with the Father. This is the divine glory it's been written about that transcends the temporal world. The glory of the divine word by whom all things were made. Imagine that. Here Jesus is desirous of the glory he knew and enjoyed in the Father's presence before creation. Before he came to Mary's womb as a child, before he took on human flesh, the radiant, eternal glory of the Son of God. Now maybe you know why John started his gospel, the very one we're reading, the way he did. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that is through the Son. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then John amazingly says, That word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus longs to be glorified again. And that's not self-indulgent. That's not an illegitimate request. That's not selfish. That's not out of order. It is the very thing the father had promised to do for his son. We hear the story of the Son's condescension to human flesh and His re-glorification by the Father announced prophetically by the psalmist in Psalm 72. The psalmist cries out in anticipation of the Son of God, may His name endure forever. May His fame continue as long as the Son May people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is what Jesus is praying for. That he will be glorified before all creation. Psalm 24. The psalmist does it again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Answer, the Lord. (laughs) Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God is the king of glory. Jesus is praying that this promise will be true. 
When Jesus lived on the earth, he fully expected this moment to come, and he spoke of it. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but it is my Father who glorifies me. Again, in John 12, Jesus prayed. We have another prayer, and Jesus turns and he says, Father, Father, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The truth is, no one can glorify the Son except the Father. And Jesus is praying that the Father will bring him to his throne, and one day all of creation will see the radiant splendor of his holiness and his glory, his beauty, his perfection, his power. And then as Jesus prays, he reminds the Father of something. Look at verse 4. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Father, glorify me because I glorified you. And I, I finished, I accomplished everything you sent me to earth to do. Jesus then div- completely, completely fulfilled and completed the divine will with perfection. And, and, and Jesus is saying here in this prayer, for the benefit of the disciples and for us, that there is, there is nothing left to do. He accomplished the plan of salvation. He, he accomplished the saving of sinners. And notice that Jesus speaks of his coming death as if it already happened. Again, the words, I glorified you on earth having accomplished all that you gave me to do. He hadn't been betrayed yet. He had not been arrested yet. He had not been tried yet. He had not been crucified yet. He had not died yet. He had not been raised yet. But Jesus prays as if, as if it had already happened. So sure, so sure of himself, Jesus is, that he speaks of the atoning work he came to do as a done deal. It is finished. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. I've done, Father, your will. And now glorify me. Glorify me. But here is the twist. Here is the turn in the narrative. Here is the unexpected detour in the story. How will the Father glorify the Son? What is step one? It will be the cross. Jesus will be glorified in his agony and death on the cross to be followed by his bodily resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The pathway, and what a lesson there is for disciples, the pathway to the Son's glorification must lead through the shame and the indignity of the old rugged cross. The cross is the vehicle of the glorification of the Son which the Son seeks. This is why he came. 
He came to seek and to save the lost. How would he save them? He would save them by atoning for their sins, by shedding his blood. In his incarnation, in the manger in Bethlehem, his eternal glory had been veiled. It was hidden. But in his cross, his eternal glory will be unveiled. Do you remember the strange testimony? One of the first Christian witnesses, he's often overlooked, one of the first Christian witnesses is a Roman centurion, an unnamed Roman centurion. And he saw it. He saw the Son of God take his last breath and he said to his own peril as a Roman centurion, he said, surely, this man was the Son of God. He saw that glory. Don't you know the thief on the cross saw the glory of the cross? The other man scorned Jesus, mocked him, cursed him, blasphemed him. And this man said, oh, oh, you and I, brother, we're getting what we deserve. But this man is innocent. And then he eyeballed the Son of God and said, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That thief saw the glory of Jesus on the cross. Have you seen his glory there? The Son glorifies the Father by obeying Him all the way to the cross. And the Father glorifies the Son by receiving His atoning sacrifice and raising Him from the dead. And my dear brothers and sisters, there is nothing in all of creation more glorious than that. Jesus received a welcome into the presence of the Father where he returned to his glory and splendor, that pre-incarnate glory and splendor he once knew. He received all that as the just reward for mission accomplished. And now this one who began his journey to glorification through the cross sits on the throne. And one day the curtain between the seen world and the unseen world will be removed and all of the world and every human who's ever lived will see the King, Jesus, on his throne and he will be glorified finally forever. But this is perplexing. Don't you know it was perplexing for the disciples. This is not the pathway to glory that we would expect or seek for anyone and certainly not for our Savior. The cross defies human logic. The cross runs counter to all that lost humans believe about victory. That's not how we would win. That's not the way we would defeat our mortal enemy. 
That isn't the way we would seek to be glorified, and yet Jesus is glorified by means of his death, a death he does not deserve, yet he willingly submits to. And this, my dear friends, is not the wisdom of the world. That's why the world thinks that what we do in these four walls and what we believe is utter, utter nonsense. This is not the way to glory among men. This is foolishness. This is the the ultimate absurdity, the cross. But nevertheless, it is the perfect plan of God from eternity past. And so for the benefit of his disciples, and for the benefit of his disciples now, Jesus prays that it will be carried out to its fullest. And this is the foundation of for the peace that those disciples needed. That's the foundation for the peace and the assurance that you need right now. That Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, obeyed the Father all the way to and through the cross and was raised never to die again and demonstrated for all the world to be in awe of that he is the Son of God. Can you begin to see why the Savior, the one first discovered in the manger, is exactly who we think he is? who he said he was? Can you see that here Jesus himself confirms that he is the only one who may rightly address God as Father? He is the eternal Son of God. He is the one who was in the beginning with God. He is the one through whom all things were made. And that all-glorious one, the Son, entered human history. He was found in appearance as a man. He emptied himself of his glory. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. In the fullness of time, he was born to a woman. And he did that to save us. God made flesh in order to save us. God become a man. The profoundest of mysteries and the most blessed of truths. And Jesus puts this in the face of his disciples as he prays to the Father. This is the assurance you need. This is the basis for your hope and your peace. He is God in the flesh. But do you see now why he came, why he took on human flesh. Again, Jesus tells us in this prayer, he came because he had a mission to accomplish. To do the Father's will. To save you and me. But look at the way Jesus speaks of you in verse 2. Here is why he came. To give eternal life to all whom you, Father, have given him. 
Next Lord's Day, we're going to explore that passage a bit more. But can you hear what Jesus is praying? And this is going to, this is going to, it's going to blow you up right here. It's going to blow your mind. Jesus took on human flesh, accomplished with perfection the work of a Messiah and a Savior to give you eternal life. Look at this line, to give eternal life to all, Father, whom you have given me. And here Jesus takes us from the mystery of the Trinity into the mystery of what we call the eternal covenant of grace, the eternal covenant of redemption. What Jesus is referring to is so incredible. There there is no systematic theology text or theologian who could do it justice. But here's our, our feeble attempt to define it. In eternity past, God determined to save you. I mean, by name, you. He made a pact with the Father that he would become incarnate to go save you. Notice, all whom you have given me. He speaks of that company in chapter 6 of John. He says it again. All that the Father has given me will come to me. I'm going to get them. And do you see what the Lord is doing? He he is reminding his disciples that that he did all of that, not for nameless, faceless people, not from some ill-defined or undefined category of humanity. He came for you. He came for you. You. If you belong to Jesus, you're in that company of those given to the Father, given by the Father to the Son in eternity. And if that can't give you peace, if that can't give you assurance, then there's no hope for you. (laughs) And in this prayer, that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's just told the men they're going to suffer and die. They're going to live in a hostile world. But remember, remember the Son, the glorious Son laid aside His glory. He took on human flesh and He came because He had you as His target of love. There's nothing grander than that. And that, my dear friends, is why we celebrate Christmas. The Son came for you, for His elect, for His bride, for His sheep, for members of His body, for the true Israel, for the new covenant people, for the church. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. He did that for you. Moved only by love. And because he did all that, you can look up to heaven today 
and say, my Father. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you're troubled, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Believe in the one who came just for you. Let's pray together.